0: The problem with the new normal is the normal. It's embedded in a status quo that we know is built on an architecture of segregation, built on racial inequity, and has enormous consequences for what we call the walls of opportunity that are built around the next generation talent pool. Who's gonna lead our world? It's precisely the people who have not been given the right opportunity to show their talent and use their lived experience, and higher education has been at the center of that.
1: I'm Andrew Seligson.
2: And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to the Compact Nation podcast. Andrew it's been a while since we've been on this podcast.
1: It has been a while. I think we last recorded a podcast during the Eisenhower administration. So this is exciting.
2: Yeah yeah this pandemic has uh, changed a lot of things and put some roadblocks in the way but yeah back we're back you know,
1: the good news is no one knows how long ago you know, anything happened anymore. so we could have told people that we've been putting them out daily and they would have believed us as well.
2: Our people are smart. They would have known.
1: They are smart. They are smart.
2: (laughs) So, Andrew, we have a lot of programming coming up. Do you want to share with our audience um, some of them?
1: Sure. Uh, I will share the fact that our Impact Award nominations are now open. So the Impact Awards, uh, we are very excited about. They've grown over the years and, you know, it's it's one of the ways that we recognize the extraordinary work that people and institutions across our network are doing to connect higher education to the public good. We have awards for faculty members. We have awards for community engagement professionals. We have awards for institutions, both two year and four year Award applications are due September 15. You can apply yourself, you can nominate someone. So if you're doing great work that you think should be recognized, if you know people who are, uh, you can head to our website and you will find all the information you need to participate in the Impact Awards. And again, one of the things I would just say is, uh, sometimes people are reluctant to toot their own horn But, you know, this is a really important way of showing people extraordinary things that are happening, helping them see the opportunities, helping them know who to reach out to to get great ideas. So don't hesitate. Jump right in. And so, again, go to compact.org to learn more. What else can we let people know about Marisol?
2: Uh, So we're really excited. We've been talking about this since our 2018 conference, but we have uh, just launched our uh, affinity networks. And so um, these are networks that bring together um, members from the campus community, including faculty and staff uh, from across the country around specific areas. So our kickoff affinity networks will be uh, f- the first ones for mid-career professionals. We have a number, another one for minority serving institutions, uh, community colleges for democracy and uh, for rural serving institutions. So we're hoping that um, this space uh, provides um, some structure and opportunities for connection and for folks to strategize together, ask questions, find answers, uh, and support each other in, in their work. And so these will be made up of folks from member campuses across the country. Uh, and we're hoping that these affinity networks just uh, continue to be a source of gathering uh, and support for um, our community engagement uh, professionals. And so folks can find more information about that on compact.org. We have um, sort of a uh, rolling uh, application for it, but we'll be having them quarterly and we're um, really excited about about that. Uh, what else do we have on the horizon? Uh, we've got a conference coming up. Um, we will make more announcements about that um, later, but uh, just be on the lookout. We will be doing our conference, uh, Compact 22, virtually uh, again this year, um, but are looking forward to folks submitting proposals uh, to present their work and sharing uh, amazing um speakers uh, and opportunities for connection again. So uh, be on the lookout. There will be a save the date coming out in the coming weeks. I think there's another big announcement. Do you want to share that with our folks?
1: I do I do have some personal news to share so we we shared this out folks may be aware but uh, I will be leaving campus compact uh, at the late, late in August uh, to take on the role of president at an organization called public agenda which is a research and public engagement organization focused on strengthening democracy and increasing opportunity and It is, uh, you know, the classic bittersweet moment. I've been with Campus Compact seven years. I've had the opportunity to work with extraordinary people, both in our national organization, across our network, on our member campuses with all kinds of partners uh, that we've worked with. And, you know, have loved the work that I've done. and, And the I think most of all, the opportunity to work with people who are constantly working to improve their communities, to deepen student learning, to strengthen our democracy, uh, people with whom I share values and experiences and who I've learned from, who have very different experiences from mine. So uh, there are many, many people I will miss, miss a lot. I'm also excited about the work I'm going to do. And I feel like what I've been able to do at Campus Compact is great preparation for this next stage. Um, Public Agenda was excited about the opportunity to connect their work more deeply with higher education. So I think I'll continue to have the opportunity to work in partnership with many of the folks at Campus Compact, uh, as well as in our network. And I'm I'm especially excited that right now this is a little program note for our listeners. In addition to Molly, our producer, and Marisol, I have the visual attention of Molly's cat, Scully. Although now Scully is showing me an ear mostly or something, Mm -hmm. but uh, who has... Uh, just really locked in for this segment, so I'm excited that <laughs> Scully cares about what I'm up to next. because yes. uh, that's mutual. I just want
3: <laughs> want that
1: to be understood. So this is not my my sign off, my farewell. We'll we'll do another episode before then, so you can you know hold your tears, etc. for for the next round. But uh, did want to share that.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, many thanks for all that you've brought to Campus Compact over your seven years. And I know we'll continue to work together and support each other's work. So congratulations. Um, and, you know, looking forward to seeing what you do with Public Agenda.
1: Thank you. And, and so am I. So <laughs> we'll see what it's all about. Uh, all right. What do we have in store for uh, this episode, Marisol?
2: Yeah. So uh, obviously we've been in a pandemic for, you know, the better part of 18 months. And so um, we had the opportunity to interview um, some higher education leaders uh, around uh, some chapters that they did in a book called Higher Education's Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic, Building a More Sustainable and Democratic Future. Um, It was released in late February by the Council of uh, Europe Publications. And so... I had a chance to um, be in dialogue with uh, some of the uh, American higher education leaders who uh, submitted and who had chapters in, in the book. So I was able to talk to Chancellor Nancy Cantor, uh, President Paul Pribinow, <laughs> And uh, Professor uh, Henry Taylor uh, Jr. Uh, from uh, University of Buffalo. And so uh, the segment just talks about their chapters and um, just the way that they're um, the response um, to, to this pandemic. And not only that, um, the racial justice movement here in in the united states and really thinking about um in these times of of crisis uh how do our institutions work towards building um you know not only democracy but 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 democracy especially for the most uh, marginalized and and creating voice So i'm really excited for folks to to hear that and um engage with our um our speakers and um also hopefully check out the book Thank you So hello all. Um, I'm so excited to have the three of you uh, join us for our Compact Nation podcast and learn a little bit more about your contributions to the book, Higher Education's Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic, Building a More Sustainable and Democratic Future. Um, This book came out um, through the Council of Europe Higher Education, series number 20. And so um, I'm going to invite each of you to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit about what your contribution to the book was. So Chancellor Cantor, can you start us off?
0: Hi everyone, I'm uh, Chancellor Cantor, Chancellor of Rutgers University, Newark. Um, w- we are an anchor institution in and of the city of Newark and um, Peter Englott and my colleague and I wrote um, a chapter for this volume. And we really focused on the notion that we have to go beyond the new normal. We hear all the time, post-pandemic, post-racial equity, we have to go beyond, we have to go to a new normal. And our argument is that we really have to be transformative, that we have to go beyond a new normal. The problem with the new normal is the normal, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's embedded in a status quo that, we know is built on an architecture of segregation, built on racial inequity, and has enormous consequences for what we call the walls of opportunity that are built around the next generation talent pool. Um, Who's going to lead our world? Who's going to lead our communities in the future? And it's precisely the people who have not been given the right opportunity to show their talent and use their lived experience. And higher education has been at the center of that. Um, We're not the only player in creating those walls of of injustice, but, but we have been, and we need to really own that. So we talked about ways in which higher education institutions as anchor institutions in their community need to transform themselves as well as working collaboratively and across sectors to work on dismantling the walls of inequity and work on building a very different, more equitable society, um, dismantling segregation in every way and and its long arm. Um, So I think I'll stop there so my colleagues can talk and I'm sure we'll come back to the details.
2: Great, thank you.
0: Uh,
2: President Perbina, would you introduce yourself and let us know Thanks, a little sir. bit about your contribution?
0: Yeah, thanks, Marisol. Um
4: Paul Pribenau. I'm the uh, president of Augsburg University in Minneapolis, uh, finishing my 15th year here as the president. Um, and uh, I've had the privilege over the past, along with Nancy and Henry for the um, you know, past decade or more, to participate in a variety of Council of Europe um, gatherings that have included folks from the U.S. and uh, Europe and around the world um, around important topics. And, and when I was asked to participate in this volume just a little over a year ago, um, as the pandemic was beginning to spread, I I was in the midst of actually um, uh, responding to what I call the intersection of three pandemics. Um, the public health crisis, certainly uh, that that hit hard for all of us. Um, uh, the economic disruption that was affecting, especially uh, we're a BIPOC majority institution. And a lot of our families um, uh, were certainly facing those challenges. And then, of course, the murder of George Floyd, um, not far from our campus. And so my piece in the volume took the intersection of those three pandemics as a kind of launching point for uh, as as Nancy was looking to transformation for the future, which I'm not opposed to. I went back (laughs) into history to find first principles uh, out of a A tradition that I think actually is more relevant than ever on the settlement house tradition, which I'll certainly share here because I think, in many ways, um, at its best, that tradition actually challenges us to think differently. In fact, to live into the kind of transformation that Nancy is pointing to. So glad to be part of this conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and Dr. Taylor, how about you?
4: Yeah, as as
3: Paul and Nancy, I've been working with the Council of Europe for a number of years and in terms of thinking about ways that we can transform the university and and have it to play a a much more energetic and powerful role in in, in the shaping of of society. Uh, I was asked specifically to develop a a chapter that that looked back and reflected on what was the post-COVID-19 world like? And how can we learn from that in in order to go forward? And specifically, my task was to look at the issues of race and social class and equality. And that setting was based upon the 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 idea that if we want to build a, a just society, uh, then it, it has to be based on, on social and, and, and racialized justice. That there is no other way. And that in its own way, the, the, the pandemic had created a, a very special moment. In a certain sense, it had suspended the old world and and created this kind of liminal space between what was and this uncreated future. And and that gave us a a moment to stop and and to look back and reflect on where we have been as a way of structuring a a vision that had the capacity to guide us as we move forward into that future world. And, And this reflection was hugely significant because as, as Paul has mentioned and Nancy has mentioned that, that the murder of Floyd and the way this pandemic impacted uh, Blacks, Latinx and people of color revealed not only these deep racial and social class crevices in this country, but it also made it clear that we can't go back to this old normal because this old normal was exploitive, it was mean-spirited and it was racist. So that meant that we we had to look back and and try to understand where we were, the things that we were doing wrong and use those issues as, as a foundation upon which to uh, construct a future that could guide our our activities. And my chapter looked at those issues. I gave examples about them. I was very critical of the university because I think that the university has in, in its own way, one of the central themes was that the university has this dual personality that it has on one side, it's its academic civic engagement side, but it also has this business development side and it gives it a kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde personality. And while on the one hand, the the, the, the academic civic engagement side Has really generated a beautiful vision of a neighborly community. This business side has a very different type of vision of what the world looks like. And so one of the great challenges of of the university is to figure out how to reconcile these two visions, how to get Dr. High, Mr. High to adopt the vision and the actions of Jekyll. And um, I'll, I'll stop at, at that point um, so that we can continue with the, the conversation. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be here for the next
2: Oh. <laughs> I could I could listen to you for the next hour, <laughs> but actually you, you were the next on the, the your question. The question to you was, was next anyway. So what do you feel like higher education needs to do moving forward? Given this sort of reconciliation reckoning process that has to happen between the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, side. I think
3: that the university needs to do two major types of things at, at this moment in time. I think first, the university has to look inward and there are powerful structural change things, things that I think need to be changed. And I'll, I'll list about three or four of them. One is that I think that, that there has to be uh, uh, an intense effort to recruit uh, Blacks, Indigenous uh, and Latinx faculty members. Over the last 20 years, there's been just a dramatic reduction of these individuals, along with increased students. So we've got to create again that critical mass of people of color on these campuses. Simultaneously, universities must invest in the existing, and I want to stress existing programs, uh, academic units and centers and other activities that are already engaged in dealing with the the challenges and problems facing communities of color, and that those departments have to be made robust, those centers have to be made robust so that they can do the things, carry out the missions that they are supposed to. At the same time, I think new institutions must be created in order to deal with the new challenges or a deeper understanding of the challenges that we face. For example, at the University of Buffalo over the last year, because of a growing awareness of health problems and issues, we created uh, the University of Buffalo Community Health Equity Research Institute to, to drive these uh, issues. Then the big issue, I think that the university must control and develop a strategy to deal with the uh, uh, entrepreneurial side of the university. Now, I recognize the importance of fund generation and its centrality, because in this neoliberal age, as government has reduced taxes and revenues, it's also diminished the resources that it provides to, to the university. But the reality is that many of the real estate and property development activities of the universities actually undermine and do harm to people who live in these communities. And the university's partnerships in many places with the private sector and with uh, government are creating the kind of gentrified creative city that is disrupting, destabilizing communities of color, pushing them to the urban margin, as well as into the declining low wealth suburbanized areas. The university doesn't wanna be a part of this and it has to find a way to take these two warring personalities and blend them together so that we can begin to get a different side of activities. And I think that they have to begin to use their resources to work with neighborhoods and communities around developing non-market approaches to neighborhood development and community development that utilizes community land trust, that builds a shared equity forms of a home ownership and understand that the market-based strategies simply will not work in these underdeveloped, marginalized neighborhoods and communities, and a very different type of of, of strategy. Uh, uh, has to be employed. And, and I'll stop with with, with with those couple of items on my very long list.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. Let's to think about with, with that and I'll have more questions later. Um, President Pribbenow, your piece looked at the intersection of the three pandemics. And I think this connects to what um, Dr. Taylor was talking about. Can you share with our listeners a little bit more uh, about how you experienced those three pandemics in Minneapolis, um, and how that ties to democracy and the social ethic of, and higher education's role?
4: Yeah, uh, nothing like being in the epicenter. I have to tell you that's
2: a, right. <laughs> it brings a sense of
4: focus <laughs> and urgency to the work. Um, yeah, uh, and, and it's work that it's a journey we've been on, and so I, and in some ways, I, I want to make that point. I mean, Augsburg is committed to this work, been committed to it for fifteen years, and so what mm-hmm. we take this particular moment in the midst of these uh, pandemics to, in fact, uh, lift up that work and and strengthen it even more. But uh, I've argued, actually, in lots of other uh, writings that that there is a democratic impulse in the history of higher education in the U.S., that that almost every sector, you can go back to its founding. And there was, um, with all kinds of other challenges, there still was something there about democracy um, and that it's been eroded. It's been eroded both by the kinds of things that Dr. Taylor has pointed to, but also by outside forces that have truly changed and, and have helped to challenge that kind of democratic impulse. So my argument in the essay is that uh, we need to find the conceptual frameworks to come back to that democratic impulse, to find it in our histories, to interrogate that saga, if you will, both with an appreciative inquiry, but also with a truth and reconciliation kind of lens to say, you know, we've we've lost this and why have we lost it and how do we get it back? Um, and so for me, uh, as I mentioned uh, you know, earlier, I go back to the settlement house uh, tradition um, and find in that in that movement, um, three simple ideas that I use as that kind of conceptual framework. And they are, uh, they are, in fact, cons- I think, constructs that actually point to uh, the kind of both inside work and outside work that Dr. Taylor has pointed to. So the first is, how do we imagine democracy, not as a uh, the machinery of government, but in fact, as a social ethic? And so Adams herself, of course, named that. Um, recently, uh, David Matthews, the head of the Kettering Foundation, has written a beautiful piece called With, and it's really about democracy as a sort of with each other, um, the genius of how we live alongside each other. And so for me, that is both then a tool to think about how we equip our students for democratic engagement. Um, And in all kinds of practical ways, we're doing that. We're teaching our entering students the the tools of public organizing. (laughs) They're learning public narrative. They're learning uh, coalition building. So we're, we're quite you know, quite clear about in Canada, about the fact that we think those are skills they're going to need both on campus and then in the broader world. But at the same time, we are also trying to shift uh, the point that Dr. Taylor made about the Jekyll and Hyde nature, where our commitment to anchor work, to being an anchor institution means that we we merge those to a mission commitment, an equity commitment with a business commitment and say that when we bring those things together, we can actually help to create healthier, safer, just, more just communities. And so that notion of a democratic social ethic also then shapes that work. Um, the second category is the expansion of our uh, understanding of both ways of knowing and of knowledge. So to broaden, you know, I mean, I, I've been at Augsburg University, been around for 151 years, founded by Norwegians. They were Lutheran Christians, uh, traditional liberal arts, you know, a dominant institution in a, you know, an immigrant neighborhood. How could you get more white in terms of the threads of your identity than that? Um, and yet we are now this majority BIPOC institution in the midst of an immigration immigrant neighborhood full of Somalis and Ethiopians and others. And so I have learned from my students um, that they come to us with lived experience, with forms of knowledge and ways of knowing that actually begin to challenge our curriculum. They challenge us in the classroom. They challenge us to understand how we are open to a whole variety of different kind of cultural and religious forms of knowledge that, in fact, are not part of my upbringing or my education, but can reshape who we are. So we look, uh, I often quote the wonderful um, uh, Catholic priest, Henry Nouwen, who said that, you know, hospitality is not about inviting people in to change them. It's about inviting them so you can be changed. Um, And that is really the attitude that we're trying to take as we think about it. And it's led to the creation, uh, we will launch next fall, a, a critical race and ethnic studies program that we should have launched Five decades ago, uh, because of who we are, and we will do it with a cluster hire. Direct to, to Dr. Taylor's point, we will be hiring faculty of color directly to come in and launch this program because our students are asking for it. So, expanding our ways of knowing and our forms of knowledge, and then the final um, piece that we draw out of that uh, tradition is really a commitment to e- what I call evolving social arrangements. Um, you know, Dr. Taylor's pointed to another example: create new entities, but also transform the entities that you're a part of. Rethink. Um, you know, an inherited bureaucratic structure, late 19th century, you know, organizational model that dominates, you know, the uh, higher education in the United States today. So how can we think about fluid boundaries, uh, partnerships? That's what Adams did. She didn't go into the neighborhood and say, I know exactly how to do this. I know what kind of organization is going to work. She said, we will respond to those needs by organizing ourselves as those needs demand. And so anchor work. Um, We have become a very, uh, you know, like I'm sure Buffalo and and Newark, Rutgers, uh, Rutgers, Newark. um, We have become a place where we have lots of programs that used to be freestanding 501c3s on their own that have now become part of us because we can share resources and actually both enhance our work, but also strengthen the infrastructure that allows them to do even a more effective work. So something like the Minnesota Urban Debate League, which plants debate programs at every middle and high school in the Twin Cities region because it's an equity commitment, because because lawyers understood that debate is a pathway to college and beyond. Um, And so we now have Somali and Spanish debate programs at every middle and high school in the, the twin cities area because of that program. And it's a part of Augsburg. So a lot of people would have said, 10 years ago, why is Augsburg doing work in the K-12 schools? Well, we're doing it because um, that's a shared commitment that creates a pathway for someone to success, especially for students of color. So, so those three, um, Democrat, democracy as a social ethic, uh, changing our ways of knowing and our forms of knowledge, and then being open to these evolving social arrangements, I think are three ways to um, lean in, if you will, to what this pandemic is calling us to, so...
2: Thank you, and uh, Chancellor Cantor, you and your co-author discuss institutional transformation to advance equity and impact. And I think both Dr. Taylor and um, President Pruvinau spoke a little to this as well in in their um, conversations. But can you um, share with us or identify the four aspects necessary for this transformation um, and how have they worked within the context of Rutgers-Newark?
0: Thanks very much. Well, it, it shouldn't surprise me that Henry and Paul and I are very much on the same page as we, the three of us have worked, four of us have worked, three of us worked together for, for a long time. So um, I'm going to repeat much of what, what each of them have, has eloquently said. First of all, institutional transformation, if we are all going to be genuine democratic anchor institutions, creating mutually responsive relationships across sector in our community creating the next generation of change makers we have to create and paul alluded to this a kind of seamless two way pathway two way pathway an inside outside intersection if you will where who's coming in to our institutions and who's going out in and of the community is a seamless back and forth where it's not, as Paul said, that we're letting in some people to give them advantage and that we're going out as one of Paul's colleagues, Harry Boyd has always said, going out with our cult of of experts. We are going out to build a community of experts, as I call it, with and without pedigree. We are of the community. So what does that mean? From Peter and my perspective, we outlined four aspects of institutional transformation that would set us up as higher educational institutions to be democratic anchors, to make a difference, to dismantle the status quo, the racist status quo. So first, we have to create new tables in our institution. Who, who sits at the table of our institutions? I always like to point to what I call the exceptional child strategy that higher education institutions use, whether it's in their hiring of faculty, in the students we admit, in the staff who do so much of the work of our institutions, day-to-day, who's sitting at the table? As Henry said, it has to be a critical mass of different pathways in of the people who really need to own society. And we have not had those people at the table. So how do you create institutional pathways? For example, for students. So we sit In Newark, New Jersey, we sit in New Jersey, one of the most diverse states in the country. Newark, New Jersey is highly diverse as as a city. It's the largest city in New Jersey. There is an enormous wealth gap in New Jersey and in Newark. In New Jersey, the median net wealth of a white resident is $106,000. The median net wealth of a black or Latinx individual is $179. As my my colleague, Ryan Haygood, our partner on a reparations um, study has argued $179 doesn't even buy you a laptop. So what does it mean for higher education to genuinely not just close that racial gap or that racial equity chasm in our society, but actually to build something novel and new. It means new pathways. So if you sit in Newark, New Jersey, and you're a public research institution as we are, and you don't first of all educate Newarkers, so we have created College Promise Scholarships, full last in scholarships for residents of Newark with adjusted family incomes of 60,000 or below. We have created an Honors Living Learning Community dedicated to social justice that has over 50% of its students are from Newark. We have a massive prison education program and re entry program so that we are educating not only in all the state prisons in New Jersey. But once formerly incarcerated individuals come out, they are part of Rutgers Newark, and they are getting getting their bachelor's and often graduate degrees. We have to think of those pathways as being across the educational landscape. And this is the second piece of transformation. You know, higher ed institutions are unbelievably competitive. All we do is try to move those rankings, care about where we stand relative to the institution down Mm -hmm. the road or the institution in another state. We have to cut that out. We have to build ecosystems of collaboration, for example, between community colleges and four-year institutions, from prisons to community colleges to four-year institutions, we have to build social capital networks that connect our next generation change makers to opportunities in everything from cultural institutions to corporations to city hall. So we have to build a really robust pathway. That's the second thing. The third thing we have to do, and Henry alluded to this, is we have to reward. Are scholars who actually do publicly engaged scholarship. So, if the first thing we do badly is that we only follow an exceptional child strategy, and the second thing we do badly is that we chase rankings and we're competitive, the third thing we do badly is we don't give tenure and promotion to those who are actually out in the community collaborating. Not being the experts, but collaborating and doing publicly engaged scholarship. So at Rutgers Newark, for example, when the mayor comes to me and says, Nancy, find me a scholar who can do an analysis of the risk of displacement of Newark residents when the billions of dollars are pouring in for development, capital development in downtown Newark and throughout Newark. I can turn to a distinguished professor who's getting rewarded at the Center for Law, Inequality and Metropolitan Equity, David Trout, and he can do a study of what it means, what a risk matrix, risk for displacement, and a study of what affordable housing. His study showed that Newark needs 16,000 affordable apartments to keep new workers safe in this context, 16,000. So that's, that's the third thing we can do, is we can stop thinking only of our disciplinary reward systems and think about our community engaged reward systems and what that looks like. And finally, the fourth thing that we can do is that we can be anchors and create collaborative tables, cross sectors with the cultural institutions in our environment, with the big corporations in our environment, with city hall, with the school system, as Paul talked about, we can think about what does it mean to hire, buy, and live local? What does it mean to create inclusive schools and dismantle segregated public schools? in a state like New Jersey. New Jersey has the sixth most segregated school systems in the country. And it's yet one of the most diverse states in the country. So we're suing the state of New Jersey in a coalition for inclusive schools. What does it mean to use socially engaged art and have artists sitting at the same table as major corporate leaders from Prudential? As major government leaders, as major hospital leaders, as major education leaders, we need these anchor collaboratives. We can't expect to do it on our own. So, finally, I circle back to what Harry Boyd said about the cult of the expert. We need communities of experts, and we all need to make real commitments not just one and done commitments. We need to make real financial, social capital commitments, development commitments, people, human capital commitments that actually make change.
2: Thank you. I love this idea of like the collaboration and sort of thinking about where higher ed um can situate itself with around that that collaboration so as we're thinking about you know the the pandemic and kind of what we saw at the beginning where it was this competition among states there was no real direction from the federal government like and even thinking about your your own institutions do you feel like those institutions that, you know, and thinking about your colleagues acro- across the country, those institutions who already had deep uh, commitments to the community were able to be more responsive to, to the pandemic and the racial justice movement um, than, than others? Like, where did you see some of that um, tension uh, happening as the pandemic and the racial justice movement were kind of coming together uh, at the same time?
4: Yeah, so you... Um you get institutions that hunker down because they got they got frightened just like individuals got frightened and you know and they weren't they weren't prepared um, it's not that they hadn't done community engagement work or civic engagement work over the years I mean I think you know, to Henry's point most of our institutions do some form of that but for those of us who had really built robust anchor institution um, kind of networks we were prepared um, to to step right into the situation in our case uh, in the neighborhood that uh, uh, Augsburg lives in uh, it's the the most diverse zip code between Chicago and Los Angeles, and as I mentioned earlier, all of our neighbors are immigrants of various types, and uh, and food insecurity uh, was a huge issue um, youth unemployment was a huge issue so we were prepared because of our partnerships because we had actually already built trustworthy relationships with other institutions we were able to step directly and the truth is uh, in our, our case became a very valuable kind of leader in responding to those issues on the ground um, you know and it's everything from very practical stuff like members of our community running food drives and doing to the fact that we were able to apply for you know foundational support that allowed us to uh, really uh, take the, the mechanisms we already Put in place, like a campus kitchen program, and others, and just immediately be present with our neighbors. And so, I think, uh, I think you're certainly right that that um, this work developed over time um, really does set up an opportunity to respond to a crisis uh, like we've seen here. And uh, I don't wish I don't wish another crisis upon us anytime soon, though there probably will be one. <laughs> um, and so, we're prepared for it, uh, you know. Uh, and I think people recognize that that was a huge difference for us.
0: Yeah, and we we did similar things to what Paul's talking about. And I think one of the things that for me was so interesting was to see how the lived experience of our very, very diverse student body was therefore able to be really helpful to City Hall. So, for example, when when the city started doing contact tracing, they needed people who could do language translations mm. and who had real trust and credibility and since we have so many students who come from the very family, immigrant families, from the very neighborhoods where people were being called, they, our Lives in Translation program was able to send out hundreds of students to do that contact tracing in a way that would not have been possible if we had been the sort of monastic anchor that only brought students from elsewhere and not, wasn't embedded.
3: Uh, one of the things that uh, we saw early on <clears throat> was that I think that that the impact that the pandemic was going to have on the uh, African-American people of color was really a blind spot for most people around the country.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah,
3: And that uh, most folks simply had not paid attention to the just... Awful health conditions that are in the black and brown communities. I mean, we live in a country where uh, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We spend by a wide margin more money on health care and on health research than any other country in the world. Yet we have one of the poorest health outcomes among the developed countries. Uh, The United States is like number 33 in infant mortality rate. Out of about 36 of the most developed countries, we're even at the bottom of the list in terms of life expectancy. So most folks have not looked at health as a top priority among folks. Uh, And even though things like the infant mortality rate, the uh, 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 low birth weight baby issues, the premature death issues were uh, at third world levels. In in most places, nobody was upset and concerned and and this was simply not a a priority issue. In in Buffalo, we had taken a different position and had started to build a unique type of, of, of collaborative. And it was a collaborative where those of us at the university, at the medical campus, and across the various disciplines had started to work closely together with a coalition of African Americans and had begun to look hard at these issues and challenges and questions. And about a year or so before the pandemic, we had developed on campus in partnership with the residents in the community, uh, the Community Health Equity Research Center. And then we built a companion uh, center in the community, the Buffalo Health Equity Center, so that we had a research arm and we had a number arm that could move on practical issues uh, within the community. So when when the pandemic hits in in March, we immediately clustered together. And we said, the African-American community is going to be hit harder. And the Latin community, they're going to be hit harder than anybody else. It's going to devastate this population. And so we immediately began to lobby the county government to provide the resources that would allow us to create a framework inside of the community that could uh, mitigate what we knew would be the impact of of residents. I'm an urban planner and I direct the UB Center for Urban Studies and I'm also uh, the Associate Director of the Community Health Equity Research Center. And so we began to analyze the structures of neighborhoods and communities, looking at demographic places, running the numbers ourselves to see those parts of the city that were being hit the hardest, both in terms of the infection rate, as well as in terms of the death rates. And with the help of the county, we were able to get some eight to nine million dollars and were able to build an infrastructure inside of the community that dramatically reduced early on the death rates inside of the uh, African-American community and to a lesser extent inside of the uh, um, Uh, uh, Latinx community. And then a a surveillance that we did of of universities across the country admitted the data was limited, et cetera. But, But the kind of thing that we saw emerging from that was that the general response was not an energetic focus on people of color. But a response right. to the to the virus as a whole. Uh, and while that was okay, what was missing until very late in the game was the reality that that these communities of color were being hard hit. The example that I'm using along those lines is I think that universities have to move beyond the easy. To the heart.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: by that, I'm let me be very specific in what I'm talking about. We, we kind of take a, a non-spatial approach and we act as if it's okay for people to live in underdeveloped neighborhoods where development is a social and human development is arrested. So for the most part, we got no programs energetically saying we will not tolerate these existing pro- activities. Now, our data analysis, and I'm willing to share this research with anybody, is arguing that a culprit is a land valuation system. That going back to what Nancy said, our data suggests that the devaluation of black space is the foundation upon which the valuation of white space Mm -hmm. is done. And what that means is that any place in the country, as the percent white increases and income increases, housing value goes up. And as the percent of black and social class inclusivity increases, value goes down. So while rhetorically we talk about inclusivity, in practice, we build exclusive communities and why? Because neighborhoods are surrounded by housing value. Housing value generates neighborhoods and communities and the power the prestige and the privileges of whites flow from their segregated and separate neighborhoods. So they have a possessive investment in maintaining these underdeveloped, marginalized communities. My point is universities have to take a position that we have to fight to change these places. By hard, I mean to say. We need to take on the existing rental property because most black and brown people are renters that live in somebody else's house. We need to force and create new laws and create teeth in the existing laws so that we can change those conditions or take away the housing for people who can't afford to or don't want to, and put them in community land trust situations where the people own it. So that's gonna be legal fights and legal battles. We have to do two things. Right now we're in a system where housing quality is pushed down while housing costs is pushed up. And so most of the people in Newark and and up in Minneapolis and all of these places are living in in rundown, uh, inadequate housing and paying high rents. And most of them are rent burdened. I mean, we got many people in Buffalo paying 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of their income on housing. We have to go after that. We have to understand Like I'm working with closely with the medical school and we're looking at the pathways between neighborhood conditions and undesirable health outcomes. We have to fight to improve the quality of the sidewalks, the streets, these rundown things and strengthen institutions and communities. That's what I'm talking about, the hard stuff. Yeah. Not the easy stuff of going in there, not that it's not important, of providing services to people that will make life a little bit better, but will not alter and change the fundamental realities uh, that they face. And before I stop, because I know my one second with this is over, <laughs> I just want to go back and really hit hard. In a positive way, what what Paul was talking about, we need democratic, participatory, democratic frameworks in these cities. And I'll stop there other than saying if we had a thousand Pauls and Nancy running Americans colleges and universities, we would be having a very different conversation.
2: (laughs) Amen. So what you just said reminds me of a couple of things. One is the quality of housing and the affordability and people having to double and triple up and the way that that ended up spreading COVID right amongst families in really quick ways, especially since a lot of these folks were were essential workers. But two is that the um, the ways in which we tolerate these living conditions for 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 communities, and at what role higher ed has in that. So I just wanted to kind of highlight those points in in terms of what you said. And and then my last question that's for for all of you is, um, I guess maybe the premise that you uh, gave us, uh, Dr. Taylor, about if we had a thousand Nancy's and Paul's running American colleges and and universities, we'd be having a very different conversation. Um, But we're also having a conversation about Um, I'm not sure folks saw the UNC Chapel Hill and the non-offer of tenure to Nicole Hannah Jones, who did the 1619 project and the way that higher ed, especially public higher ed is being politicized um, through tenure promotion processes and, you know, even the conversations about critical race theory being part of this was under the Trump administration, um, like contractors who did any training around critical race theory had to stop or they would lose their their contracts right in the midst of sort of this pandemic that also gave rise to this growing awareness of racial injustice and the ways in which our democracy has not been equal for all, right. We don't all, depending on what community you are a part of, you don't experience democracy in the same way. Democracy has not served you in, in this, in the same way. And so as we're thinking about, um, you know, these kinds of board of trustees at institutions of, of higher ed, um, the neoliberal functions of, of the university, the response to, to community, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde piece, like what are some of your thoughts and in how we not get out of that political piece, but create a space for, for American higher education that is um, strong enough to hold those contentions um, that, that we see taking place, right? Because democracy is also essentially about these contentions and how you're able to engage in civil discourse to come to, to um, laws and agreements and practices and policies that help serve as many folks as, as possible. So just, just some final thoughts on that as we close. Uh,
0: I just want to say very quickly and then turn to my dear friends. Um, you know, higher ed tend, tends, and the surveys all tend to talk about the national lack of trust in higher education. If you are an anchor institution collaborating honestly and trustfully on the ground, In your community and of your community, the trust is enormous that you build up. Part of our problem is we're constantly looking beyond. We study climate science around the world and we forget our own backyard. Mm -hmm. If we create the kinds of collaborations that Paul creates, that Henry creates, that we create here in Newark, on the ground. There is enormous citizen trust and enormous trust actually from the cultural side. We haven't talked enough about the arts here and its role in civic democracy. When the voices are heard, when the monuments are analyzed for what they really are and what the history really is, then you build the trust bottom up. We're so used to building the trust from some broad perspective and to ignoring our own backyard. We think of our own backyard as parochial. Mm. Our own backyard is the future.
4: Mm. Awesome. Wow. What does it mean to be stewards of a place? We've been in the same location for 150 years. I mean... um, yeah, Wallace Stegner once said that there's this uh, uh, kind of uh, tension in the American psyche between those who uh, are boomers, those go, it, go into a place and use it up and then move on to the next. And those who are stickers, he called them stickers, those who come to a place and settle in. And I think our institutions need to be stickers. We need to be settlers. That's why I find the settlement house. Because if you, are, if you settle in, then you learn to be neighbor with each other. You have the opportunity to walk alongside, you know, folks that are in your place and share that space with you. And uh, that's been powerful for us. The only other thing I would add is that uh, Henry's exactly right. The hard work in the community. I mean, I think about the placemaking work that we did in our neighborhood. I mean, that was about making this a healthier place to live for everybody and, you know, served our interests, but it did serve a, a population. And so that, and that was hard work. It took a lot of fighting with the city and with, you know, engineers who had better ideas about how to do that, but for us to do it in a way that made it a more livable place, but the other thing, the hard work inside, uh, you know, which we've referenced here. I mean, whether it's uh, rewarding people who do this work from our campuses, but it's also, you know, constantly rethinking um, the policies and practices that we've inherited, that in fact are, you know, blatantly racist when you get down to it. I mean, and and we've been doing this, uh, doing this audit of everything we write um, that goes out to students and to others, and we're finding just, you know, ridiculous things that, given our commitments, would never. Uh, you know, we would never say, but yet we inherit and we evergreen things and somehow we don't go back and and analyze. So that there is hard work to be done because that's systematic hard work to kind of work through and to make sure that our institutions, you know, truly are not, um, you know, undercutting the promises that we make. And so we can make some claim that we're a place committed to anti-racism with equity and inclusion. And yet, you know, my graduation letter that goes out to Somali women students says that you have to shake the president's hand when you walk across the stage. Well, they're not going to shake my hand and I wouldn't shake their hand. So but yet we say that to them and that maybe keeps them even from showing up for graduation. So just a simple example of where we get in our way sometimes with what we do as an institution. And that that work needs to get done as well. I think at the top of the list,
3: uh, we need to understand that we're in a, a war that's expanding. And and we have to cast away our illusions about uniting this this country. I mean, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful story, but it belongs in a fairy book, along with Santa Claus and the Great Pumpkin. Back in the late, early 1970s, Richard Nixon started a revolutionary transformation of American society. He literally tore up the social contract that had been developed by Roosevelt. He reconstructed the relationship between the federal government and the the states with his devolution revolution and his new federalism. Uh, uh, He opened the door for the emergence of neoliberalism with its emphasis on small taxes and allowing the government to run free. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party continued that movement and the Democratic presidents from uh, uh, Carter all the way through Obama did not challenge the basic structural shifts and changes that were made. Under Donald Trump, a deeper, more dangerous movement has occurred and it has taken root it has taken root and it's now a form of black nationalism that's expanding and growing because the democratic party and a liberal America never were willing to go to the next step and build the type of society centered around social democratic principles equality of a wealth distribution and controlling the market so that it can be used for social and human development. So in this myth, we're now in a place that, that w- w- we created because much of American history is, is based upon myths and stories, not reality. I remember learning that George Washington never told a lie. When everything that came out of his mouth was a lie, and that Lincoln freed the slaves. And and so, none of that is true. And we've never been able to accept our history and and the tragedy of the University of North Carolina. And it is tragic. It's tragic in two ways. One is that, that UNC had become a a focal point and center for the production of of books and articles on on the black experience. My daughter's award-winning book, Race for Profit, emerged out of that, that context. And yet they moved away from the basic principles of higher education. My point is that this is just the beginning. We're in a war and we need to understand it. So I think there's several things that universities must do. One is that we must revise our curriculums and transform them into anti-racist curriculums. Now, is this crazy? No. I'm working right now with the Jacobs Medical School to design and move through all four years an anti-racist curriculum. And if a medical school and and Paul and, and Nancy know how typically conservative these medical schools are. So if you can get a medical school to begin to say, hey, we think something is deeply wrong with medicine. Surely the liberal arts and the professions can follow suit. But we can't play with that. We have to teach our kids about democracy. Uh, Paul, you must know, most students could not speak knowledgeably five minutes about democracy. They don't know the distinction between elite democracy and democratic democracy or social democracy. They don't have a clue. And, and, And so there are many things that our kids Uh, Don't understand. When when I spent time in Cuba, one of the things that I started to understand was how knowledgeable they were about the whole world and how dumb and ignorant our kids are. I always say they are the smartest, dumbest people on earth in lots of ways. I I ask people, students in my class, have you ever heard of H. Rap Brown? No, is he a rapper? (laughs) I just they know nothing because it's not taught anywhere. So I think we need to rethink these curriculums, especially in the first couple of years in college, so that lots of stuff that we know they're going to miss in high school won't be there. And I emphasize this because if we do not do it, they will not be prepared for the wave of reaction that is coming. And when I say that, this right wing movement has been growing for a number of years. And the new movement that is sweeping across the South, the movement that is designed for the Republicans to seize control over the both wings of the House, is real, and we cannot pretend it's the the creation of some crazy man named Donald Trump or something. It's a trend, and we must prepare our people to fight for it. And if we don't, everything that we have been fighting for over the past 25 or 30 years will be lost. And what has happened in North Carolina should be a signal to all of us that this is not going to go away. And I'm saying this, I've spoken at North Carolina. You know, I've I've been there. I, I have people there. I have friends there. And if you had told me that they would do that, I would have said no. But I'm also reminded that Something similar that happens uh, uh, to our good friend over at uh, Harvard who was denied tenure. And so uh-huh. it's it's a dangerous sign that's out there, and I just think that we need to be prepared for it by actually changing a lot of things on curriculums that will prepare our students for the future.
2: Well, thank you all for this conversation. I know I could keep on talking about this, this stuff because it's so uh, relevant and important, you know, as we're thinking about um, higher, how higher education moves forward, how the work of civic community engagement, democratic engagement moves forward within our institutions and with our communities. So I just want to thank you so much for, for your time and uh, more conversations to come.
0: <laughs>
2: thank you sure. yeah. Thank you. Well, folks, thanks for listening. Um, So obviously this is not uh, Andrew's last podcast, and I can't do this podcast alone. So uh, stay tuned for uh, the next episode where we'll be introducing our new uh, co-host of the Compact Nation uh, podcast.
1: New and improved, if I do say so myself. Yeah, she's pretty awesome.
2: So... um, So thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at compact.org or chime in on our social media uh, with the hashtag #CompactNationPod. Thanks all for listening. We will be back and uh, we will continue our podcast uh, into next academic year as well. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, or the general vicinity. Our hosts are Marisol Morales and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper, a.k.a. Lady Leaper of Steventown. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag Compact Nation pod. Thanks for listening.